It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who wants to be the next governor of Texas. He's got more competition. It's Beto O'Rourke. We'll talk about that, and we'll take your calls. So also, if you want to write, briankilmeade.com, just it'll go to my uh, you'll have a chance to hit on comments, and this way, if you're at work or at school, your schedule change, you can still be part of the show while you have your AirPods in. Uh, we have J.D. Vance standing by, wants to be the next governor of, excuse me, the next senator from Ohio. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word. Do you believe this? That is the prosecution panicking. And that was the worst assistant DA ever. Rittenhouse trial goes to jury. If he's not exonerated rapidly, I lost faith, 100% faith in our legal system. Number two. I think she actually accomplished something very historic. She got CNN historically... Uh, the strongest supporter of liberal Democrats to run an entire story pointing out that the president's team and the vice president's team are fighting internally in a very ferocious way. Very fascinating. CNN do it, did it too. The Harris, the Harris hemorrhage, overwhelming proof that Kamala Harris is ill-equipped to be VP as her staff and White House leak. She can't handle the job and just about any issue. She has no knowledge. It's now called Operation Damage Control. On display Monday. Number one. The bill I'm about to sign a law is proof that despite the cynics, Democrats and Republicans can come together and deliver results. Uh, spend. We can do this. All right. Spend, spend, spend. That's what Joe Biden's Democrats are doing. Uh, one day after getting a $1.2 trillion deal for infrastructure, they're now two days from a vote in the House on the $1.75 trillion human aid bill. Is this all an effort to save the midterm elections or proof they lost the House already and they're just throwing caution to the wind? Uh, let's bring in J.D. Vance. Uh, J.D., first off, on the Rittenhouse trial, what, how, how do you read it? Well, you know, I've been obsessed with this case pretty much from the beginning, Brian, and I guess the way that I read it is really as an indictment of our media above anyone else. I mean, you know, Joe Scarborough was calling this guy a white supremacist from the get-go, even though, of course, he didn't shoot uh, black people. He shot white people, and he himself was a white person. I don't know how racism motivates a white person to shoot other white people. Uh, it was pretty clear from the video evidence at the very beginning that he was acting in self-defense. It was pretty clear from the very beginning that the people that he shot were bad people. Uh, they were trying to kill him. Some of them uh, committed felonies in the past. And yet you had, from the president of the United States on down, every institution in our society coming after this kid, trying to ruin his life, calling him a white supremacist, and now trying to throw him in prison uh, pretty much for the rest of his life, even though he's only 18 years old. I just can't believe that we're here, and I'm, I'm, I'm exactly with you. If this kid goes down, I think it'll completely be the end of faith in the criminal justice system. Luckily for him and luckily for our country, I think it's very likely he's going to get off. 
Uh, yeah, I would hope so. And just goes to show you, too, uh, every victim was white. Uh, DeJores, I think all except one is black. But yet everyone's talking about a white supremacy. I, I don't even get it. It's such a reach. And now we got 500 National Guardsmen standing by, along with police. And Kenosha is nailing up well, with plywood their, their shops. How, how pathetic is this? In America, if people don't like something, we have to just assume they're going to try to wreck something. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, think about what it says about our country that if the verdict comes out the way that the Black Lives Matter movement doesn't like, then we sort of expect that they're going to riot and loot and burn an American city. It's just ridiculous. You know, the other thing that I find really, really disturbing about this is you know, in, his, in, his, uh, in his instructions to the jury, the judge basically had to tell them to ignore something that the sitting president of the United States had said. Why is the president of the United States coming after a 17-year-old you know, presumed innocent teenager for defending himself? And why does the judge have to tell the jury to ignore what the president of the United States says? We're living in an upside-down moral universe when that's happening. And I think this Rittenhouse case, it just reveals so much of the corruption at the heart of our press. I mean, how many journalists, Brian, I, mean, how many, I know you're, you're one of the good ones, but how many of your colleagues uh, in other stations, other networks, assumed this kid was guilty assumes that he shot black people, assumes that he illegally carried a firearm, which is really, if you look at the facts of the case and the law, was never in question. The media hasn't gotten a story like this so wrong in approximately three months, which is uh, depressing because it gets a major national story wrong about once a quarter. And, and it's like we, we can't even believe what the press tells us anymore. Right. Well, you you got to start suing, including the sitting president, even if he's exonerated. And they said you can't. As a candidate, he can. you got to get people fearful of their jobs if they're doing something irresponsible. David Axelrod, of all people, took aim at the judge. This kid has the good yeah. fortune of a de facto defense attorney on the bench. He goes on. In keeping with this Wisconsin State memo, the judge's message to gun-toting vigilantes, forward. Yeah, exactly. That was really disappointing. I actually saw the exact tweet that, you, that you're, you're referencing here. And, of course, the judge is just doing his job. The judge is just instructing the jury, making it clear what the law is. And, of course, you know, defending the law, not defending the defendant, but defending the law. You know, the, the prosecution came after Kyle Rittenhouse, of course, again, a teenage boy, for exercising his right to remain silent, for not speaking out on it. You know, the judge got really mad at him, as he should have. You cannot, as a prosecutor, impugn somebody's Fifth Amendment right to not speak out uh, before, before you want to. And yet the prosecutor did that. The judge called them out. And now you have figures in the national press right. uh, impugning the judge when they would, the judge was just doing what he was objectively supposed to do, which is defend the law in his state. So, uh, you know, in Ohio, Senator Portman's going to be retiring here, vying for a seat. He was called a great guy by Senator Biden, excuse me, President Biden. And one of the reasons why there was bipartisan buy-in, he did negotiating when it came to this 1.2 infrastructure deal. Here's the president yesterday. Cut to. America's moving again, and your life is going to change for the better. All right, we got the idea. $1.2 trillion. It was so necessary. He held on to it for three months and then waited another additional two weeks. Do you think Senator Portman did the right thing? No, I don't think that he did, Brian. I mean, look, I, I think that at the end of the day, there are two big problems with the infrastructure bill. The first is that most of the money is not going towards infrastructure. We do need spending on infrastructure in this country. But of $1.2 billion, maybe $400 billion actually goes to infrastructure. The other $800, 900000000000 goes to a bunch of waste and garbage that Democrats want. 
The bigger problem with this bill, though, and you already see the Democrats doing this, is it gives them this bipartisan flag to wave, right? This has been the most partisan administration in American history. You have a president of the United States, as we just talked about, going after a teenage boy, and yet the Democrats can now claim a bipartisan victory, which they're just going to use to now push another spending package and then another spending package. At a time when we have skyrocketing inflation, Republicans do not need to be giving Democrats political cover for their ridiculous spending programs, but that's exactly what they're doing. Well, what about Kamala Harris? How real is this when you have people, uh, 30-plus anonymous sources, tell CNN of all places that uh, they are in disarray and disillusioned that the White House is not giving them more plumb assignments and then you saw Kamala Harris yesterday desperate to try to be front and center. What do you think's happening here? You know, I, I'm a newcomer to politics, Brian, but I've already picked up that when you see a story like this, you have to ask who's planting it and why. And I think there are two possible, possible uh, avenues here. So one is that allies of Kamala Harris are trying to knife Joe Biden and potentially prepare her, I think, to become the heir apparent in the Democratic Party very early. So this is an ambitious move by Kamala Harris, or it's possibly a move by the Biden folks to try to push Kamala Harris out so that the person who comes after Joe Biden, of course, he's 78, 79 years old, is not her. Maybe it's Pete Buttigieg, maybe it's somebody else. But this is Democratic Party power politics. I mean, this is how they play it. They're stabbing each other in the back. They're using the media to do it. It's kind of fun to watch from the sidelines. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's very serious business because it may very well influence who leads one of our major parties. Uh, let me ask you, when do you reach across the aisle? When are you going to look for a Democrat to join you? At what point do you look for compromise, not just conservative legislation? You know, I, I think that the, the, the guiding principle here has to be your, your values here. And if you can work with a Democrat to accomplish something that's consistent with your values and good for your constituents, then that's when you reach across the aisle. So just, you know, one idea, I think there might be some possibility to work across the aisle with Democrats on the big tech questions. You know, Brian, I think it's ridiculous that they censor people all across the political spectrum, that they have so much power in our economy. You know, if a Democrat wants to work on that issue, I'm more than willing to work with them. What I, what I don't think you can do is compromise your principles and not get anything in return. It's one thing to compromise, to work together. It's another thing to be had, to be used by the opposition, which is unfortunately what I think has happened with this most recent round of so-called bipartisanship. So, so I'm just reading these stories about in the past that inflation has cost a lot of presidents their presidency, and presidents are yeah. really helpless to do anything. Um, uh, do you feel that way? You know a lot about economics, Ivy League education, in the real world, in business. What is the president not doing that he could be doing? Well, I think there are a few different things. I mean, first of all, we have an inflation crisis because not enough stuff is made in America, and we're spending too much money on not enough stuff that we can actually control the supply of. Basically, demand way too high, supply way too low in, in economics parlance. Well, the president is throwing fuel on the, on the fire with just more spending. When, when the question is, okay, if you give people all of this money, you have a lot of people not working, that encourages people not to go back to work. Then they're not making the things that are necessary for people to buy at stores. They're not actually providing goods and services to our economy. So in a lot of ways, what Biden is doing is the exact opposite of what you should be doing. What you need to be doing right now is making it easier for businesses to hire and making it easier for companies to reshore critical supplies in our economy, make more things in America, enable consumers to buy more things in America. 
That's how you get this inflation under control. But if you look at the Biden administration's policies, it's a crazy. They're doing the exact opposite on all of this stuff. And, you know, okay, you know, 10 months ago, of course, I disagreed with this stuff and I called it out, but I'm a conservative Republican. Now, when you see the effects of the policies, the Biden folks continue to double down. That's what's so crazy to me. I get that they didn't agree with me 10 months ago. I don't know how they don't see the consequences of their policies right now. It's obvious for everyone. And, of course, a lot of independent voters are starting to recognize and punish voters at the ballot, excuse me, punish Democrats at the ballot box. So, you know, uh, illegal border crossings are up 168 percent just in the Dallas, in the Texas sector alone, RGV. While one of those congressmen switching from Democrat to Republican is Ryan Guillen. Here he announced it yesterday. Uh, and what went into that decision? Cut 38. Something is happening in South Texas, and many of us are waking up to the fact that the values of those in Washington, D.C. are not our values are not the values of most Texans. The ideology of defunding the police, of destroying the oil and gas industry, and of the chaos at our border is disastrous for those of us who live here in South Texas. So that, and you, you have a lot of other people, and then you have, uh, you just had a Republican win in San Antonio. They haven't won there in 30 years. Is this indicative that Youngkin's win in the off-year election could be even bigger for the GOP? I think so. I think the big problem for the Democrats, the clip you just played alluded to this, is that they've become the party of crazy people on gender ideology, on critical race theory, on inflationary economics. They are the party of people who live completely detached from normal Americans. I mean, you know, most people want to live in safe communities. They want to be able to work hard, play by the rules, support their family. They don't want to walk down the street and and run into a protest of people burning down uh, small businesses in their community. They don't right. want to uh, call the police and have nobody come and answer. And the Democrats are becoming the party of crazy people. So long as Republicans are the party of normal people, we're going to be in good shape in 2022. J.D., if people want to support your senatorial campaign, what do they do? At JDVance.com, uh, read about our issues, volunteer, support our campaign. Um, we'd love to have the help. A lot of momentum, Brian. Things are going really well here. It's still early, but we feel like we're in a great place. So you, when is the primary? May? It's in May. Yeah, so got another six months or so. <laughs> Pace yourself. J.D. Vance, thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Brian. Take you care. got it. Listen, when we come back, your turn. Speaking of pacing yourself, now's the time. Step up, one 408 And if you're listening to me right now, remember, I'll see you tonight, 6 o'clock, Vero Beach, signing the president and the freedom fighter. And don't forget, I'll also be in Pensacola and then in uh, in. Uh, in uh, Alabama. So find out more at BrianKillMe.com. Just click on book tour. And don't forget Sunday, a week from two days ago, Sunday, I'll be in the Plaza Live in Orlando, Florida, talking about all my books. Uh, America, great from the start. It's going to be fun and it's going to be patriotic. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Oh, let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty that had no one in it. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. 
Oh, and there's this empty wooden flatbed trailer that they pulled out in the middle of the road and they tipped it over to stop some bear cats and they lit it on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word. Right. Uh, when you're talking about na- labeling someone a racist and the guy he had to shoot to save himself uses the N-word, I think it's pretty significant. Why he would bring that up and pretend lighting a dumpster on fire is no big deal, uh, lighting a porta potty on fire is no big deal. Uh, have a, if you looked at the video, you realize this guy is a menace and he's dangerous. Just got out of a mental hospital and he's chasing after uh, Rittenhouse and you wonder why he shot him. He turns out he could use the gun. The rifle's allowed. Uh, even at his age, he was able to use the right gun at the right time. He clearly was backpedaling. Uh, and I, you know what I'm astounded by? These are the networks who are irresponsibly reporting this trial, many of which are carrying it. Do you know MSNBC yesterday only carried the prosecution's closing argument, not the defense? And if you are one of the rare and one of the few MSNBC dedicated watchers, you would think watching the video, listening to this guy skewer the truth and not having any objection from the defense inexplicably, you would think that this guy, they, you hung up and you watched uh, you watched MSNBC and you said, okay, it looks like this guy's guilty. That's how irresponsible the media has been, labeling this guy a, uh, a raging white supremacist. If everyone's a white supremacist, then no one's a white supremacist. We are done with this talk. But just downplaying the bitterness there, I think, is going to lead to more damage. And I, I, this, my prediction is going to be uh, they're going to find him uh, not guilty, and they will not damage Kenosha. Why? Because the cops are once reinvigorated. They're now backed up. 500 National Guard. Cut 17. Kyle Rittenhouse shot Mr. Rosenbaum because he was attacking Kyle. Every person who was shot was attacking Kyle. One with a skateboard, one with his hands, one with his feet, one with a gun. It's a tough choice, but the evidence only leads to one conclusion. That is that Kyle Rittenhouse's conduct on August 25th was privileged based upon the actions of Mr. Rosenbaum and others. Thank goodness for the video. You, you have to make your own decision, but there's also a lot of video. The Lieutenant Colonel Alan West is coming up next. Uh, he wants to run for governor. Beto O'Rourke wants to run for governor. We'll see how that goes. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think she actually accomplished something very historic. She got CNN, historically uh, the strongest supporter of liberal Democrats, to run an entire story pointing out that the president's team and the vice president's team are fighting internally in a very ferocious way. I've never seen CNN do anything that would be harmful to Joe Biden. This story was devastating. And I think it starts with a simple fact. Biden's at 38 percent approval. She's at 28 percent approval. 
powerful people wake up in the morning, they go, it can't be me. So I wonder who's doing this. Uh, well, there's about 30 people on her own staff that don't like her. They say it's chaos, much like her campaign staff. Evidently, she was a mess as an attorney general. The only reason she got the job is because the president said it's got to be a woman and it's got to be a minority. Uh, everyone else just backed out. Plus, they don't even like each other. Maybe they did, but they don't now. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West joins us, wants to be the next governor of Texas. Uh, Colonel, it's pretty amazing. CNN does a story that blows up the vice president. They would love to say it's a Fox story, but it's not. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's good to be with you, Brian, because one of the things that normally you would have, you know, is unity of command and unity of effort between, you know, a, a leader and uh, the, the person that they have selected to be their vice president. Or when you're a battalion commander, you have a, a deputy uh, commanding officer or the same when you're a division commander, you have a deputy commanding officer. But when we look at what is happening between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, they're not on the same sheet of music. Uh, you look at the fact that he gave her this uh, task to go down and be the border czar. But, uh, I mean, she's been not just absent. She's been completely AWOL. And she has abdicated uh, any duties and responsibilities she has, just the same as Joe Biden. And so that's why I think you see this uh, leadership team, and I use that word very loosely, they are crashing and burning. And the left right now is in a panic and a freefall mode because they don't know if they can survive this over these next years. You're, you're going to see a very damaging effect to the to the left because the country is completely rejecting this team of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And they got to find someone to blame. Can you imagine getting praise from 85 percent of the media every single day and yet your approval ratings at 40 percent, maybe at 38 percent? Can you imagine getting pray like being given a pass every day and your approval rating is at 27 percent? Think about the child actor space briefing she gave. Think about her comments that she tried to put on a French accent in French. Think about the fact that she the only time she got angry is when she thought a Border Patrol uh, uh, officer on a horseback was treating a Haitian badly. Meanwhile, she doesn't even want to talk about the border. And she wonders why that she's not getting the respect. But she blames the White House because they don't give her plum assignments. Really, Colonel, in life, do you always hope for an easy assignment to make you look good? No, you don't. And that's one of the things that the military taught me is sometimes you ask for that tough, that dirty job, because that's how you show yourself. And if you can do the little things, then you get trusted with the big things. But Kamala Harris has been entrusted with a very big thing, and that's the sovereignty of the United States of America, border security, stemming the flow of illegal immigration, and she has abjectly failed at that. So I don't know what, what she is asking for, uh, and, and she has a great opportunity to step up into the spotlight. But as you said in your opening, Consistently, she has not been a top performer. Here's a person that dropped out of the uh, Democrat presidential primary before the, the real primary contest even got started. She was polling, I believe, at less than 1%. And now she's sitting in a position as vice president, and the only reason she's there is because of the external characteristics that you just talked about, her gender and her race. She was not ready for prime time. Joe Biden has definitely proven he's not ready for prime time. And the folks that are suffering – the American people. And that's why you see the approval rating so bad. Yeah, here's the thing. You really need an active vice president. Mike Pence was active. Dick Cheney was active. Al Gore was active. And, you know, Vice President Biden had a role. I mean, no doubt about it. He was doing stuff. She's not doing anything that I could tell. Listen to this. So she comes out. She wants to praise Joe Biden and make it seem like there's no problem between them, which means there's a problem between them. Listen mm -hmm. to this. She gets to the podium and listen to the announcement. Cut for her.
welcome Heather Kurtenbach. In a moment. <laughs> they did not even have her on the rundown. How embarrassing is that? That's incredibly embarrassing because anyone will tell you before you put on any event, you have a, a rehearsal. You go through the run of the show. And so obviously, I don't know the level of disrespect and the, the level of discord that we see coming out of, of our uh, our presidential administration right now. It's very disconcerting because, again, the American people suffer from this. And furthermore, our allies are sitting over scratching their heads and saying, Who's who's in charge here? Is there anyone, you know, steering the ship? Is there someone at the helm? Obviously not. And so right now it seems that America is just a, a rudderless ship that is out there in some very tumultuous seas. So uh, I want you to hear what John Kirby said uh, to the Oklahoma National Guard who refuses to, impl- to uh, implement a vaccine mandate. Cut 36. It is a lawful order for National Guardsmen to receive the COVID vaccine. It's a lawful order. And refusing to do that, absent an approved exemption, uh, puts them in the same potential uh, as active duty members who refuse the vaccine. So they're going to fire him. Are they going to fire the whole Oklahoma National Guard? Well, he doesn't have, obviously, uh, John Kirby does not understand that uh, a sovereign state, uh, a, a, the governor, is the commander-in-chief of his National Guard. And there's only two ways that uh, they can impact that, Title 10 and Title 32. That's how you put guardsmen on active duty orders. Title 10 comes from the president. Title 32 comes from the state governor. And so the Oklahoma governor is saying that, you know, these troops that are under my command and control are not going to be forced into a mandated uh, vaccine. And so Mr. Kirby can't go down and fire, uh, I mean, no one. The president, he can't fire the entire Oklahoma National Guard. And that was one of the things that I brought up here uh, when Governor Greg Abbott was uh, talking about the Texas National Guard having to mandatorily get this shot. And uh, that has to come from him because he's the commander, and and that's in the Texas state constitution. So, again, we have some problems here where uh, folks don't understand the system of federalism. Folks don't understand the Tenth Amendment. Uh, All of those rights and powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the state states and to the people. We have sovereign states. The border is not being protected here. They're trying to overrun and dictate to the uh, state's National Guard. we got to get this federal government back in uh, in their right box. Yeah, that would certainly help. I was talking to uh, Colonel Allen West, and on the Democratic side, Beto O'Rourke, despite losing uh, his primary for uh, to be run for president after he lost to Ted Cruz as senator, after spending years as a congressman, now he's going for governor. Here's a little of Beto. So they're not focused on the things that we really want them to do, like making sure that we have a functioning electricity grid or that we're creating the best jobs in America right here in Texas or that we have world class schools or that we make progress on the things that most of us actually agree on, like expanding Medicaid or legalizing marijuana. Instead, they're focusing on the kind of extremist policies uh, around abortion or permitless carry or even in our schools that really only divide us and keep us apart. Yeah, so do you you worried? You going to change your mind? 
Uh, no, not worried whatsoever. I am absolutely thrilled at the prospect of being on a debate stage with Robert Francis O'Rourke. Uh, you know, legalizing marijuana, that's an extreme position. I mean, we don't want to see people here in the state of Texas, you know, going around in a permanent buzz and how that would affect on our safety and security. You know, Beto O'Rourke believes in defunding the police, and we've seen the detrimental effects that's had in Austin, Texas. They have a 71% increase in homicide. That's an extreme position. When he talks about the failure of the electrical grid, that's because we put too much reliance in an unreliable source of energy, and that was wind and solar. And so we were expecting a 23% energy distribution from them. That dropped down to 3% back on Valentine's Day uh, earlier this year. But he supports the Green New Deal. He supports open borders. And so he is absolutely happy with the flood of illegal immigrants. And so I guess he's happy with Texas being the number one state for human and sex trafficking, Dallas and Houston being the top two cities in the country for sex trafficking, the drug trafficking crisis, the public health crisis that illegal immigration has brought. So Beto O'Rourke is wrong on every issue for Texas, and uh, he's not going to be successful whatsoever. But I think he's just going to try to raise a bunch of money for himself. But hopefully the folks from outside of Texas don't support him. So something else happened. I don't know if you know him or not, but it looks like a state senator has switched parties. Uh, He has Mm -hmm. decided that this party has moved away from him. And this is very similar uh, his name is Ryan Keehan. He announced on Monday that yep. he would seek uh, would seek reelection as a Republican. He won that seat with 17 points, but he said that they have just moved away from him. Here's a quote. The funding of the police, compounding the crisis on the southern border, uh, destroying the oil and gas industry, and the chaos at our border currently is disastrous for those who live here in South Texas. So he's flipping parties out of embarrassment. Have others said that that you know on the other side of the aisle? Well, no, and uh, Ryan Guillen was, without a doubt, when you look at his voting record, uh, he's not just a blue dog Democrat. I mean, he really is a conservative Republican, and his family members are uh, conservative Republicans. And what you're seeing here in the state of Texas, Joe Biden has less than 35 percent approval rating with the Hispanic population. As you know, the big story coming out of the November 2020 election, Rio Grande Valley. That flipped over. County uh, Zapata County, 100 years had been blue. All of a sudden, it flips to red. So the Hispanic community is starting to realize that these people that call themselves Democrats and people like Mr. O'Rourke with a fake Hispanic nickname, they don't have their best interests at heart. They're not aligned uh, politically, philosophically, and their principles and values are completely different. And I think you're going to see a lot more of this happening, not just in Texas, but probably across the country. Yeah, John Lujan is the upset victory that he pulled off in San Antonio. Uh, Colonel, if people want to support you, run for governor. Where do they go? Yeah. They go to West, the number four, Texas.com, West for Texas.com. Thank you so much, Brian. Go get him. Uh, maybe the future governor of Texas. He's trying. Lieutenant Colonel Allen West, thanks. When we come back, your turn. 1-866-408-7669. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. United Airlines resumed selling hard liquor on flights starting today. They'd stopped selling hard liquor during the pandemic, but now it's back. Meanwhile, Spirit Airlines will continue to offer beer, wine, and the option to huff some paint thinner. (laughs) Do you think you'll get an email about that, Rob? 100%. When did you... Tell us, tell everybody what you told us today, which I didn't know about. I got a really, really angry email from the head of communications at Spirit Airlines after our last Spirit Airlines joke. And I'm going to get a fiery one. Yeah, Ian came up with an amazing reply that you should send back, which was, go on. You should tell them that they want to reply. It's a $45 upcharge. <laughs>
That's fantastic. Uh, Gary, listen to WNDB in Daytona, Florida. Hey, Gary. Hey, Ryan. Good morning. Uh, I was hoping that uh, Mr. Rittenhouse's defense would have looked in a little bit more. And uh, since the district attorney seems to want to tell the jury he's a purveyor of justice for that area and realized that I, I looked into it, about three people were prosecuted over that two-and-a-half-day period for all the burning, looting, grand larceny assaults and point out to the uh, jury that the, the prosecutor there did a really poor job of protecting the community and prosecuting anybody else in that area. Uh, I'm not sure. So you're saying that if those people aren't prosecuted, how are you going after Rittenhouse? Uh, I'm saying that he his uh, nonchalantness of, of there were some people causing some trouble, meaning tens of millions of dollars worth of damage, uh, and they couldn't, they, you know, there weren't anybody else prosecuted. There was nobody else prosecuted. Well, a handful, two or three people, when I looked into it, were prosecuted. But, I mean, there was a lot of, of damage and destruction and very few prosecutions. And I, I'm just saying that, that that plays into the fact that okay. when you speak, yeah. No, I hear you. But, I mean, that's true. Just the chaos that was happening in these cities, I'm not condoning it, but I'm surprised there weren't more written houses. People are just sitting there going, really? My whole city's going to burn? Because what? Because George Floyd was treated horrendously by Derek Chauvin and he killed him? Because now you're going to burn my city to the ground? You're going to hassle me? You're going to hit me over the head with a garbage pail? Are you going to mug me in the in the subway because of that? And we're not going to press charges because of no cash bail and because we are blowing off steam? That's what led to all this. Cops were told to back off. The governor refused the president's offer of the National Guard. Then he recommended he use his own National Guard. And that's it. So listen to what other people are saying that just have lost their minds. I mean, uh, some of the critics of this uh, see nothing but race in all this, uh, this type of consternation, including uh, people on other channels. But one of the people that weighed in about just the pure uh, uh, jury trial, a criminal defense attorney, this guy Brian Claypool, he was on with Shannon last night. And he says, look, this is what the jury's going to be looking at. Cut 30. You've got three different victims here. You've got to go through each victim and determine whether self-defense applies on each of those. Now, I, Shannon, I personally believe that, that the judge should have done this a little differently, and he should have relied on his instinct and put self-defense above the elements of intentional murder and reckless murder and reckless homicide. In other words, the jury should be focusing on self-defense. Mm. If they find self-defense as to each of those three charges, it's over. Like Schroeder said, game over. So I think if, if the judges switched it around, we'd have a quicker verdict. But he didn't. And I think I think this is going to be several days of deliberation. Mm. Yeah, and Jim Trusty weighed in. He also talked about this might be a little bit more complicated, even though it seems open and shut to me. Cut 31. The really big moment was actually yesterday with the jury instructions, or Friday with the jury instructions, because at that point, both sides had an opportunity to weigh in about lesser-included offenses. I thought the defense case, including Kyle's testimony, was strong enough where they should have said no lesser-included. I think the judge would have gone with them on that, but it's a very gutsy moment. It's a high-stakes poker game. You're increasing the likelihood of acquittal, but you're risking the damage if you're convicted. The lesser-included were attractive to the prosecution in this case as a way to save face, as to get something, 
out of it when it is overcharged, although they still have significant penalties. Yeah. Uh, also, they have significant penalties there, and we'll see where it goes. My fear is that these uh, these jury might be a little intimidated. They saw all the riots. They don't know if they want to be responsible. I'm not saying this is an OJ trial, but those people, those uh, those jurors are tortured by the fact that they exonerated him. And may, maybe now, if they watch a city burn because they exonerate Rittenhouse, they'll feel guilty. Uh, Trey Gowdy, cut 29. Apparently, there's a rule in Wisconsin that prosecutors cannot be persuasive. I mean, closing argument is a combination of passion and logic. You don't just simply sit there and recite the evidence and use your pen to check off your point. So tough facts make for bad lawyers. Um, Their star witness went south on them. I, I get that. But I think the case was still winnable. You just can't do it when you when your closing argument puts the jury to sleep. Yeah, uh, your closing argument, also the prosecution. The guy picked up a gun. I heard him whisper because I was listening on Sirius and I got to my office. I heard him whisper, make sure it's not loaded. But he picks up a rifle when it earlier he made it pretty clear by the terminology he would use. And I'm not a gun guy, not anti-gun. I just haven't used guns in my life. Uh, the, when he was using terms, he had no idea about hollowed-out bullets or a full metal jacket. So he was not a gun guy, but yet he felt totally secure taking a rifle and pointing it at the gallery as well as the jury. Say, look, how threatening is this? And how threatening. So, some of the stuff is just comical. You look like he's just trying to make a name for himself or trying to get a mistrial, perhaps. But I also thought defense should have objected a little bit when they were just flat out using fiction to sell a story while we were watching a different thing on video. Hey, go to BrianKillMe.com. Find out uh, where I'll be. Tonight I'll be in Vero Beach. And on Sunday, big stage show. Tickets still available in beautiful Orlando, Florida at the Plaza Live. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. One-stop shopping. At the bottom of the hour, my interview with Senator Tim Scott. Uh, coming up in a matter of moments, we're going to talk to John Casamitidis, chairman and CEO of Christidis Food, CEO of Red Apple Media. And if you want to talk about what's happening with energy in this country, what's happening with the store shelves in this country, the economy, uh, the buildings, uh, he's one-stop shopping for all. Uh, no pun intended. So while John gets ready, let's go to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word. Uh, yeah, that is pretty much a big deal, I think. Uh, that is the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. It goes to jury. If he's not exonerated rapidly, I have lost 100% faith in our legal jury system. Number two. I think she actually accomplished something very historic. She got CNN, historically uh, the strongest supporter of liberal Democrats, to run an entire story pointing out that the president's team and the vice president's team are fighting internally in a very ferocious way. The Harris hemorrhage, overwhelming proof that Kamala Harris is ill-equipped to be VP as her staff in a White House leak Uh, And the White House leaks, so she can't handle just about any issue. Uh, And meanwhile, there's distrust with the vice president's office and between the president's office. America loses in this. Will it ever work out? Number one. The bill 
I'm about to sign a law as proof that despite the cynics, Democrats and Republicans can come together and deliver results. Yeah, that would be nice. Spend, spend, spend. That's what Joe Biden's Democrats are doing. One day after getting a $1.2 trillion deal done on infrastructure, they're now two days from a vote on the $1.75 trillion human infrastructure, if you want to call it that. Uh, are they giving up on the midterm elections or trying to save the midterm elections? Let's pose that to John Castamatidis, uh, chairman and CEO of Gristidis Food, CEO of Red Apple. John, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me, Brian. And, uh, and you're truly saying... America is under attack in several very a lot of directions. We're under attack uh, by I think it all started with canceling the pipeline from Canada to uh, to a Gulf uh, a Gulf Coast, and oil went up, crude oil went up from forty dollars a barrel to eighty five dollars a barrel, which caused all the other problems. It caused the increase in cost of transportation. Uh, the other problem is the cost of uh, our truckers, our labor, et cetera. And food costs are going up 10 to 15%, making it uh, horrible what's going on uh, for all the consumers in, in our country. It's not, you know, people call it inflation, Brian. It's not inflation. It's a tax. It's a tax on the poor people and tax on the middle class, because they're the ones that are paying the higher food prices. They're the ones that are paying uh, more for to fill up their cars. The White House originally said that it's a tax only on corporations, a tax only on uh, the rich. That's not true. It's a tax on the poor and a tax on the middle class. They're just using language to say it the other way around. But everybody's to fill up your car could take eighty, ninety dollars a uh, in, in, to fill up your car now. In, to to buy your turkeys, of course, almost twice as much as it did last year. So uh, it, it, it's a real problem for America. And talk about the borders. Look at them. Chinese and the Mexican cartels have gathered together. They are killing. American kids, they are killing American people. 93,000 people, Americans have died right. since the beginning of the year from the drugs. So we're being attacked on all fronts, Brian. Absolutely. So, John, I'm going to break it down little by little because you have expertise in all these areas. First off, when it comes to you have refineries, when it comes to oil and gas, there's a big war on fossil fuels. And with the president, when he realizes gas prices were rising and his ideological green energy push was causing it, he asked Saudi Arabia and Russia to pump more. Now, people who are involved in oil and gas say it is a global market. So even if America pumped more, it wouldn't necessarily affect the price of gas. Is that true? Wrong. I had uh, Senator Dan Sullivan from uh, Alaska on last week. And you know what he said? The Alaska pipeline can pump two million gallons of no two million barrels a day. You know what they're restricted to? Four hundred thousand barrels. He says to me on my show, he says to me, Why are we begging the Russians? Why are we begging Putin? Why are we begging OPEC? We have it. Alaska will send it down. And we had Ambassador Prado on from Canada. He says we got all the uh, all the crude oil in the world. We got 100 years worth of crude oil. Why are you begging Putin? Why are you begging OPEC? 
So there is something wrong. The American people are being lied to. How do you say it? Lied to. The American people are getting conned, and the real cost is going to the poor and the middle class, and it's just one big con game that's going on, Brian. So we're talking to John Casamitidis about this. And by the way, does this, this is, do you think this part of a green agenda is doing this? And do you think that he's in over his head well, right now, John? Look, absolutely he's over his head. Look what, look what uh, his press secretary said yesterday or the day before. You know what she said? Well, if we raise the price of, uh, of gasoline high enough, maybe people will accept electric cars. You know who electric cars make rich? The Chinese. Ninety percent of the batteries for electric cars are made by China, and then China had a problem; they needed lithium to 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 make the batteries. So we gave them Afghanistan. I <laughs> mean, you can't make this up. We are being attacked on all fronts, Brian. I, I, it's just uh, amazing the incompetence. They're not even making the even their bad agenda is not running on time. Ron Klain seems to be running things. So on oil and gas, preventable. Don't tell me you inherited inflationary problems because of the pandemic. Janet Yellen says the pandemic's calling the shots. That's just not true when it comes to energy. Now, on your other area of expertise is uh, is supermarkets, uh, Gristides. Uh, and, and you look at some of the prices. Now, how, when did you first start noticing that you were paying more to buy food, which means you had to up prices? And how much is it? how much harder is it to get everything than it was? We're getting notices every day of price increases. Don't forget, when, when Washington threatens the corporations, we're going to raise your taxes. And all the CEOs of the large corporations, whether it's Kraft, whether it's Heinz, whether uh, it's Procter & Gamble, and they say, holy cow, they're going to raise our prices. So you know what they do? Wall Street threatens them that if you're off by a penny in earnings, you're going to suffer. So what do the CEOs do? They raise prices even faster, so they don't, they're not the ones that suffer. They raise the prices faster to the consumer right away, so their, their December 31 uh, financial statements don't reflect, uh, and they're not off uh, in earnings. So what does that mean again? Again, attack on the consumer, attack on every poor American, every middle-class American. What about deliveries when it comes to trucks? What about when it comes to items? Do, you, do your managers tell you you're out of stuff? If, yes. Uh, normally, if we order a million cases a week in product, uh, we get 94% because that's the normal uh, stock out. Yep. You know what it is right now? 75%. So that means what I've told our consumer. Consumers say, we have everything for Thanksgiving right now, but don't wait till the last minute to buy it, because if you wait till the last minute, we might not have it, and we might not be able to restock it. So I wow. tell everybody, buy early. And there's a shortage of truckers because of new restrictions. There's a shortage. The cost of, uh, of fuel has gone up. Every store in the country gets, gets delivered by truck. So when those costs go up, of course, the supermarkets are going to raise the prices. They have no choice. They raise the prices or go out of business. I hear you. And I'm just looking at some of the prices now. Eggs up 30% from a year ago. Milk, fresh, uh, whole, fortified, whatever, up about 9%. You have ice cream up five, uh, 0.5%. Sugar up 12%. Uh, coffee up 6%. Everything is up around the country, and we're feeling it. 
Uh, John, very, very few times uh, and very few things happen where it affects everybody. And I know you, you have become extraordinarily successful, but you still remember what it was like to know, to live paycheck to paycheck and know where every, needed to know where every dollar went, right? It, it reminds me of the days of Jimmy Carter, except Jimmy Carter was a loyal American. He made a lot of mistakes. And I remember the prime rate of being almost 20%, uh, Brian. And I remember the, the inflation rates in those days were so high, it was unbelievable. Uh, but not everybody's as old as me. But, uh, but it's, it's truly an attack on America. Everything that's done, whether it's China, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Europe, whether it's OPEC, whether it's Russia, they're attacking America and the, and, and the final attack comes from the borders. And don't forget, we are not getting all our products from the Pacific. Why? California, Washington State, Oregon, all the container ships are not getting through. Why? Because, I, I, you know, I was never a Democrat or a Republican. I was just a middle-of-the-road person. But the Democrats that control those states are not getting the container ships unpacked in time, and there's going to be shortages. And now you got perishables too, right? To somebody, let's put the Chinese cartel in charge of getting the product delivered. Don't get it in in time. <laughs> uh, and a lot of the stuff is perishable. So by the time we get it out, it, it's going to be expired, especially when it comes to medicine. John Castamatidis, our guest, chairman, CEO of Gristides and CEO of Red Apple Media, kind enough to carry this show on WLAR and uh, WABC. John, the last thing is what's happening in New York. You know, I had did a, big, uh, did a book signing in Albany. I've talked to so many people because my daughters go to, go to school upstate. I get the sense that there might the, the Republican might legitimately have a shot this year. There's such discontent. Uh, Lee Zeldin's probably uh, the, the one that most people are talking about. Rob Astorino's been there. But you know reality. Do you think a Republican has a shot at winning in this state? It has to be the right kind of Republican. He has to be able to zig, zag, and he has to be able to appeal to the poor and the middle class. And uh, that is important. He can't be a Republican uh, with white shoes and a bow tie. Do you think that uh, Zeldin uh, reminds you of that? Can he? He certainly uh, he's got the military background. He is he has uh, got the Trump support, but he's not, you know, Trump or bust Jim Jordan esque. So do you think that he might have some of that material? I think he has a shot. I think he has to modify some of his uh, uh, campaign to be able to appeal to everybody, not just Republicans. Appealing to Republicans, you're you're not going to win. You're appealing to Republicans and independents, you have a good shot. Appealing to Republicans, independents, and common-sense Democrats, you have a great shot. Are you optimistic on this mayor in New York in terms of the crime situation? I am praying that everything he has said he's going to do, uh, and uh, uh, I think he, uh, he wants to do it, and we're praying for his success. What do you uh, hope that Joe Biden does in the next two days of this Chinese summit? I think it's a big problem. I think yesterday, I think uh, there's rumors around that he told the Chinese yesterday that Taiwan uh, he's not going to fight for Taiwan. I think we should look into that, Brian. I will. Uh, John Casamitidis, thanks so much. I could tell you're exercised about all this because all the gains we made over the last few years seem to be intentionally cast away. John, thanks so much.
Thank you, Brian. Keep doing the fine work you're doing. Thank you uh, for the opportunity. Appreciate it. one 408 7669 When we come back, your take uh, on what we just spoke about, uh, as well as what's happened with that Rittenhouse trial. We understand the, the jury uh, begins deliberations now. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. And Biden and his team, they must get tougher on this to fight back and explain what he's doing to help the American people. He's trying to do that now. But I think what's so interesting is that that's what we're talking about early Monday morning when today he's signing the infrastructure bill, right? There have been so many big wins, um, especially because we have had uh, people are being vaccinated. People are getting the booster shot. The infrastructure bill just got passed. uh, and, And that's a big deal. And instead of talking about that, we're talking about his approval rating. And we're especially talking about Kamala Harris's approval rating being 10 points lower than his approval rating. And I think that really speaks to where our country is. You know, let's come down on on the woman who happens to be the first female vice president that we've ever had in this country's history, which is ridiculous that it's the first woman that we've had, but but incredible. And I think the reason that she's um, getting so so much, um, I, I guess, ire from, from the right and, and from all over the country um, is because she, not only she's she's a woman, she's been giving the, these tasks that are just, um, you know, I, I, what is she supposed to do with immigration? Oh, very easy. I, I just don't understand anything she was saying. Uh, I'm telling you right now, if you look at Nikki Haley, if you look at Condoleezza Rice, uh, you know, I don't really think that Hillary Clinton uh, got much criticism as secretary of state until she started running for president. I believe she was a woman. Madeleine Albright, a woman. I would say they're just as powerful secretary of state as vice president. The scrutiny and she, that she has gotten, she has absolutely earned. I mean, a French accent with the French president. She doesn't bring up with the French president an apology for the nuclear submarine thing. Whatever you think she should do never comes up. Then she goes to the border he has one visit, doesn't even bother going back again to Ecuador, Honduras, uh, go even address Nicaragua, maybe Haiti, nothing. So because something's hard, now that is meant to fail, my goodness, you start solving big problems, you become the next president of the United States and certainly the nominee. When someone gives you things that are tough, that's called not pandering. And people give you stuff that, hey, go around and talk generically about education or preschool. You think, wow, is she getting this just because she's a woman? Now, is she getting hard jobs just because she's a woman? Because to me, if you could solve a major problem, that would give you a leg up on anybody else who will primary you. Because if you were to ask me to put my money on Joe Biden right now, it would be not to run again in 2024. They'll wait to the last minute. But he's absolutely in over his head. He has lost himself in his thoughts so often. It is so pathetic. You can't even say that you could even be political. I mean, it's tragic to watch it. And the problem is there's just too much at stake for me to just shrug it off. But for you to say this sexist, every time something goes wrong, it's sexist. If, the, if Rittenhouse gets off, it's white privilege. It's, do you understand that people are fed up with this? Whether it's Dave Chappelle doing stand-up and now he's canceled from raising money for a, uh, for a high school or no longer, invited, uh, no longer invited to do stand-up at a special event, it's, it's out of control and Bill Maher nailed it. Kamala Harris, Harris was an awful candidate. 
What I thought was worse is she doesn't study. She was going to get rid of private health insurance in one interview. Take down, let everybody in when it comes to the border. Take down barriers. And she can't run a staff. They all end up hating each other and her. When we come back and interview a rising star on the Republican side, something that Democrats just don't have, Tim Scott. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for being with us today on this Tuesday edition of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Tonight I'll be in Vero Beach. I'll be flying down to Florida. I might take off my jacket and loosen up my tie. That's how you recognize me. And then on Wednesday I'll be in Hollywood, Florida at the Patriot Awards signing books there. And then Friday in Pensacola and then over to, to uh, Alabama. Uh, go get details, BrianKillMe.com. And let WDBO, WDBO listeners, especially Orlando, OKV over in Jacksonville, uh, we still have tickets left, not many, in the Plaza Live. I'll be doing the President and Freedom Fighter uh, tour. Talk about Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. One of the most enjoyable things I've had a chance to do and insightful things are, of late is spend a day with Tim Scott. Uh, he helped me out on the special with the President Freedom Fighter, but I also had a chance to see him in his own environment, uh, out and about, walking around. Uh, here's a look of uh, that feature. I'm What's two parts of my interview with Tim Scott? He talks about how it all started and the big break he got from Governor Nikki Haley. So listen to uh, my interview with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, maybe the next presidential candidate. Senator, I want to talk politics. Yes. First off, you got into it because you wanted to give back, and you started off at a very local level. 100%. I started on the county council. I mean, that is as local as it gets, except for the school board. Uh, is that full-time? I, no. It's part-time, but it takes full-time hours. So literally, you make $12,000 a year, but you're spending 30 or 40 hours a week if you love it. And I love serving people, so it was a passion. But you're talking about you know ditches and potholes. You're talking about trash pickup. You're talking about local fire departments and, and sheriff's department. You're talking about running a jail, or at least funding a jail, not running a jail. So these are really important everyday issues, and when you're in your Piggly Wiggly or your Walmarts, you're running into your constituent, your bosses. They're right there, and they want to answer, why, why, why has my trash not been picked up yet, or what's going on with the pothole? So you learn very quickly retail politics. Understood. So you, you like it enough to do what next? State House. Went to the State House next and spent two years in the State House. It was a very short amount of time in the State House. I realized very quickly that while that was a great experience, I wanted to do something different. Why? Uh, it just, it just, I, di- I didn't feel comfortable there very long. And decided, couldn't get your teeth into anything. There was no exact job description. It's it exact- hard. It's nebulous. Yeah. And so I was going to run for lieutenant governor. And I started running for lieutenant governor, and every place I went around the state, they said, "You're not. You shouldn't run for lieutenant governor. You should run for Congress." He said, "Everything you're speaking about is a federal issue, not a state issue." And so literally. The constituents that I was talking to, the voters I was talking to, said you're running for the wrong job. We might vote for you for lieutenant government, but we definitely support you for Congress. But the problem was that Henry Brown, my Congress member, was running for re-election. And then in January, he announced he was not running for re-election. I was five months into my lieutenant governor's race, and, and people said, pivot. Well, Strom Thurmond's son was in the race. Governor Campbell, Carol Campbell's namesake son was already in the race. The last thing I wanted to do was to pivot into a crowded Republican primary against two behemoths of, re- of Republican South Carolina politics. And I uh, prayed about it and got lots of advice from folks like Joe and others who said, your race is Congress, win or lose, you got to get in that race. So you did? I did it. 
And why do you think you ended up prevailing in that race? I did. And it ended up being you against who? Uh, Strom Thurmond's son, Paul. Paul Thurmond. One on one. And with the name uh, Strom, with name Thurmond in this state, you was able to prevail. Why? Well, conservative politics, conservative principles. I was there. There was a central issue around funding for certain uh, assets in South Carolina. He decided that whatever it takes, including more federal money, including uh, earmarks, he would support it. I said I would not support our most important assets if it took earmarks to get there. I think that was one of the delineations between the two campaigns and the two, two candidates. So I went, I went straight to who I am. I'm not going to support even our assets here at home if it's going to cost us unnecessarily as a country. Uh, and earmarks was that cost, and it was too high to pay. You're there a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, Senator Jim DeMent says, I'm going to retire right away. Right. Governor Nikki Haley has to quickly fill that spot. Yes. What were you thinking? Well, I was stunned first that he was retiring. He was the most powerful and, and popular senator in our state. Do you know him? I know him well. And he called me the Thursday that he was making his announcement and told me, uh, Tim, uh, I'm going to make my announcement. I'm going to retire. And I think you're going to be one of the choices that... Nikki will have to choose between. Um, and I was like, please don't retire. We, we don't want to lose you now. And he says, I, you know, I, it's my time. And, and wish me good luck. And about nine days went by, and I didn't hear a word from Nikki until uh, a Friday afternoon or so. It was eight days went by. Friday afternoon, got a call from someone in her, her organization said, be on the lookout. She may call you. And Sunday afternoon, I think it was, she called. I went up to, to the uh, state house to the governor's mansion, and then the next morning she announced me as the, uh, the senator. What was that conversation like? Well, you got I'm drinking from a fire hydrant. You know, I'm thinking myself seven days after the announcement of his retirement, she's interviewed. It looked like a lot of other candidates, and I was not even getting a phone call from her, so I assumed it was not going to happen. So I had kind of just moved on until then. But you wanted it. I certainly wanted to be considered. And, and uh, Trey Gowdy and I sat down and did an interview, and I thought he might be the best person for the job. He thought I might be the best person for the job. I said so publicly, and he said so publicly, and then he, he just ultimately didn't want to, want to do it, uh, so he told her to appoint me. Um, and I think that had some bearing on it as well. So at the end of the day, um, I found myself in a position I had never even dreamt of being, becoming a United States Senator for the great state of South Carolina. I never even dreamed that that was possible. How did you know you liked the job? There's a lot of people that just don't like being a senator. They don't want to be one of 100. We don't get enough done. It's frustrating Listen. to go back and forth. You go in the minority sometimes and you're yes. invisible. So why did you why did you think you liked it? Well, I didn't like it. Off at the beginning, I got to tell you, I, I used to say that I am housebroken but not Senate trained because it was a lot of fun to be in the house. I, I realized after about 18 months or that 18 months or so that the Senate provided me an opportunity to have more influence on legislation. I could actually hold something up or get something done as a senator that would have taken 100 House members. And so I started realizing that a part of the beauty and the benefit of being a senator is you can get things done. Right. It's harder, but had I not been a senator, opportunity zones wouldn't, be, wouldn't have gotten done. Had I not been a senator, my role in reforming our tax code would not have been possible. It was because I was on that side of the of the Capitol, right. that I had a chance to peer into legislation and set my own priorities. And the historic nature of you being named as an African-American in South Carolina, does, does, what, what role does that have in you saying, I, I have to make the most of this? Well, I think I'm, I think I'm burdened by history uh, in many ways, and I'm delighted that I am a, a part of the process. 
burdened by history, meaning that so many times the conversation starts off about the first African-American senator from the South. Blessing and curse at the same time. My theory is I'm not called to serve black people. I'm just called to serve Americans. I think it is, it says a lot about our country and it says a lot about South Carolina, that they chose me and then elected me to be their senator. I like talking about the evolution of the Southern heart because the state I live in is not the state that my grandfather was born in, not the state that my mother was born in, even though both are called South Carolina. This South Carolina is different. We have evolved so much in so little time right. that access to real opportunity, being judged by your character and not your color, right. is my reality. And that is, that is such a blessing to live in our South Carolina. What I noticed about you, might not be true, is that you'll talk about race. You'd rather not. Absolutely. you you rather not, even though it's necessary, but you rather talk about the issues in your party and the country how do you handle that? The fact that it, you're reluctant to the fact that you are historic or the position you have and yeah. what you've achieved? I think there's two really important points. Um, number one, God made me black on purpose. I think uh, we are all by divine design. And so it's my responsibility to take advantage of every characteristic I have in order to serve people. That means I have a different experience here in the country. That is helpful for me to understand the pain, the challenges, and the progress that we've made. But I prefer just to be one of a hundred, to be one person representing a state and the nation, not the black guy, but just the guy. But that's not my plight, and I'm okay with that. I've, I've, I've embraced it, I, but I like economic issues. Not black economic issues, just economic issues. I like green. I like to talk about green more than black and white. And that's something I find great joy in. But I also like talking about people who've been marginalized and disproportionately, a lot of African Americans have had that experience. But in South Carolina, that's true for my rural folks as well. Rural South Carolina has been without representation. Right. Rural America has been without representation. So I have a chance to go into certain parts of the state where they don't look like me, but they vote for me because I understand their heart. Right. And that's the beauty of our nation. We always continue to progress in the right direction, giving opportunities to people that look like me that represent people who look like you because our hearts are congruent. Right. Um, you want some company, though, don't you, in the Republican Party? Oh, listen, I'm, hey, come I'm, on. Working, I'm working hard for some company in the Republican Party. Actually, I started organizations to train minority candidates how to be successful when they run for office. Uh, we've had uh, success with folks like Daniel Cameron and um, Wesley Hunt came through a school, and hopefully he'll be a congressmember next time. I've helped Byron Donalds and other candidates win office. So you'll have uh, some company. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you enjoyed the interview. But coming up after the break, more from my sit down with Tim Scott, where I actually stood up and walked around. We talk about his big rebuttal to the State of the Union of Joe Biden. More of that when we come back in the Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, every welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoy my interview with Tim Scott. It's a side of Tim Scott almost no one's seen unless you're one of his best friends. He gave me an entire afternoon. In this part of the interview that has not aired on television, we talk about what happened in Virginia and what could be happening for him in 2024. But first, he's focusing on 2022 as well as a big issue for him, and that's police reform. More with Tim Scott. Senator, when you look at your career, one thing that stands out that people took notice is when you had the rebuttal to the State of the Union yeah. address. 
it is usually a death knell. Most political consultants say, do not do this. I don't care who the president is. 100%. It always goes bad. Yes. You took it, and it went great. Right. What do you think about, what was it about that speech and your delivery that worked? I think it was just being authentically and sincerely myself. I honestly think that America's hungry for some good news. I think America's hungry to hear the truth that while we have an original sin, we are not a racist country. That fighting discrimination with discrimination is wrong. I think America wants to remember that the greatest dreams of our people doesn't happen in Washington. It happens in studio apartments, in garages. It happens in local libraries where people get together. Right. That the greatness of America can't be found in a place where 535 people congregate and call right. it Congress. It happens in everyday places all over the country, on both sides of the proverbial track. Right. Talking to that inspires and encourages people. Looking in a camera and saying that if you were a single mother, wondering if it's worth it, having been raised by a single mom, the answer is yes. I think just sharing that right. truth of who we are and the progress we've made and the hurdles that remain. I think it was at the right time. And it was counter to what the president was saying. The president had a totally different message. Absolutely. His was more of a collectivist mentality that one day somehow, if we redivide all of our, our resources, you'll get your fair share. That's just wrong. That somehow, that I mean, President Trump did a good job when he said, America will never be a socialist country. Biden has been leading in the opposite direction. This is the divide where people like me can step in and fill. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen the government come in with good intentions to help people, but it just made you a little more comfortable in your poverty. Never an escape route. We on the right, we provide the escape route. Since that time, I haven't seen your bank book, uh, but money has flowed into your account, and there's a buzz about Tim Scott not only running for Senate re-election, which you're doing, but for the presidency. That yeah. A lot of people see that in you. Yeah. What is your reaction when people say that to you? Like, well, for example, me. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, the money has flown into my campaign accounts without any questions. Yeah, I know. We've, we've raised a lot of money, uh, and that's a blessing. They say $8 million. Yeah, yeah. We, we've been blessed, honestly. I, I'd say this, that A, you never think about what's next until you fight and win what's now, number one. Number two, a lot of folks have been uh, waiting for their chance to run for president. I'm waiting for another chance to represent people. I'm not as interested in titles as I am in represent, representing the people that I love. And that's this country, and that's my state. And wherever the good Lord takes me, I will go. You won't rule it out, though. Well, I won't rule it in. I, I'll just simply say this. I won't, I'm not even talking about what's next until I win this 2022 race. What did you and what did Republicans learn, if anything, from now Governor-elect Youngkin's campaign? Well, I've been, I've been trying to say it for a long time, and he's, he just did it. Happy warriors attract a bigger crowd. That politics is a game of addition. That talking about education is something that we as Republicans should always focus on. Having parental involvement is key. I've talked about the importance of school choice and education equality for a long time. He has run on those issues that, the, that resonate with the average person in this country. If we were to win in 2022 and beyond, we're going to have to just talk plain English to our folks. And when we do, when we champion the causes that they believe in the most, 
we're going to be okay. Purple states, purple country, where you have to win over independence and undecideds. Absolutely. You, in a Republican, the reality is if you alienate Donald Trump, you have no shot. Yep. And in some places, if you embrace him at, tied at the hip, you also won't be successful. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Youngkin welcomed the endorsement, but never asked him to come campaign with him. In fact, he asked no one. What do you take from that? Well, listen, I think he, he was smart. He knows that a Republican running without President Trump's endorsement or support is probably a losing proposition. He also understands that his goal was not President Trump. His goal was Glenn Youngkin. Right. He wanted people to know him. He didn't just ask President Trump not to campaign. He asked everybody not to come. Not to come. Because he wanted the Commonwealth of Virginia to get to know him right. as a candidate. I think that's ideal. The ideal outcome is to have the endorsements of those who support right. the best movement in politics, which is the Republican Party. And number two, do it on your own. I mean, that, that's called grit. It's what we right. love in America. We, we like grit. We want to see the guy or the gal get up and work for it every day, not come in on somebody else's coattails. You didn't do police reform. And for a year ago, it looked like it was going to get done. Why? Well, two reasons. Number one, I refuse to federalize local law enforcement. Local law enforcement should always be, in my opinion, local. That's what the Democrats wanted. They wanted to set a standard that had to be met in Chicago with thousands of officers and uh, Marion, South Carolina, or Newberry, or Clinton with under 50 officers. We, we can't use one size fits all mm -hmm. and consider that local law enforcement. And the second part was there were 11 sections of the bill that either reduced funding, eliminated eligibility for funding, or defunded the police. I just can't do that. Got it. So you, no regrets about not getting it None done? None at all. And this issue seems to have boomeranged now. People are saying don't defund the police. Oh, my gosh. Refund the police. Uh, Minneapolis, 5644, right. led by African Americans. Basically said, are you crazy? We're not defunding the police. We're not eliminating the police department. And that's, just, that's a bold statement. Uh, and frankly, New York City electing a former police officer. You know, it's going to be interesting. Senator Tim Scott, uh, to me, is someone, if Donald Trump was not in the race, if he already did his two terms, if this was his second term, there's no doubt about it, he'd be a candidate. But you know one of the main per people that wants him to be a candidate? Everyone except him. I mean, his mom would like to see him go. Others would like to see him go. He says, you know, if that's the next step, that's the next step. He's somebody who has ambition, but he just wants to make the greatest impact, the greatest impact. And if that's being president, that's the president. At the very least, if Trump runs, I bet he's on the ticket. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walters sitting in for Brian. Uh, as you know, Brian, as he told you, he had to leave. He is headed down to Vero Beach. Uh, he's headed down to the Patriot Awards in Florida. And tonight, if you are in the area, he will be at the Vero Beach Book Center with a book signing for his latest book. You go out, get Brian's books, say hello. And I was just having a conversation uh, with the guys here, and I was saying, you know, I, I really like Brian's books. And I don't say that just because, you know, I work here, I get to sit in the seat for Brian or anything like that. I just really enjoy the books. So um, I, I just, because I, I love history. So for me, I 
just love the fact that he just finds these stories in history. And I think I know history and I'm like, I've never heard this before. This is so cool. So uh, go out, say hello to him, get his book tonight, six o'clock at the Vero beach book center and uh, the Patriot awards also coming up on Fox news. Here's, here's what I thought would be interesting. I have been um, somewhat interested, shall we say, I'm going to use the term interested in the Kyle Rittenhouse drama that is playing out. I, um, I've been watching it yesterday. I, I watched a lot of the closing arguments and I had some thoughts that went through my brain as I was watching this. And I, I do believe you get a different perspective and you'll hear me say this when it comes to like debates or, um, mostly debates, I think, but also courtroom things. You get a different impression when you listen versus when you watch right? Especially like debates when you watch, you get to see the person's face. You get to, you, you, there's certain tells with a person's expressions. Same thing yesterday with the prosecutor and the defense attorney. Granted, it was a side view. Um, we don't get to see the jury because I would love to have seen their faces during certain things. But I also like to listen because I think you pay more attention to the words and the details than you do when you're also looking. So I tried to do both. Um, and I, I, I want to know, I w- I'm going to throw this out to you and I'm going to weave in some of the things. There's some audio that I want to weave in here. I have some thoughts. I was taking notes during it because I'm a dork uh, just with my impressions. But I want to get your impressions. If you watched or listened to this yesterday, to the closing arguments, I'd like to know what came to your brain because there were so many things in my brain. I was yelling at the TV at one point and I'm like, okay, this isn't healthy. 866-408-7669 is my number. 866-408-7669. So um, I'm, I want to start out by w- one of the first things that happened yesterday is the judge went through the um, charging documents, you know, how we're going to do this and w- what we're going to, you know, what it, let's go over all the charges and everything. And this is Jonathan Turley from Tucker's show last night. It's cut 22, Eric. And Yesterday, something happened during this. The um, the gun charges were dropped, and Jonathan explains why. I'm baffled how the prosecutors got an indictment on this count. Uh, it, from my view, uh, this has no applicability to the case. The This was not a short-barreled weapon. You can determine that by simple measurement. And then the right. other alternative conditions are not met by him. And so I'm not sure what the prosecutors said that got the indictment. But the court eventually did throw that out. But here's the thing that bothered me about that, that was going through my brain yesterday as, a, as I was watching this. And one of the notes, you know, and I, I looked it up. It's legal in Wisconsin for someone over the age of 16 to carry a long barrel gun. And it met the measurements. Why did it get this far in, in a courtroom, why did it get this far until the day that the, of the closing arguments when the jury, the day before the jury decides for the judge to throw that out? Like, how did it get there? I had the same question Jonathan Turley had. Like, why are, why are we having this discussion? And this, I think, what I felt through this entire trial yesterday, this is what happens as we see the politicization of our legal system. I heard, and I'm not a lawyer, but I watch a lot of Judge Judy. And there were some things that I was yelling, that's hearsay, because <laughs> Judge Judy doesn't allow hearsay, <laughs> but apparently this judge does. Um, but but you watch the politicization of our legal system, and that was one of the things that was going through my brain. And I don't know this, 
but I wonder, the jury is made up of people like you and me, right? It's made up of people who aren't lawyers. So we just look at all of this. And I have to think that the jury probably had the same question in their brain, like, okay, now, now this charge is out. He's not being charged with this. But we were told all along that, you know, he was illegally carrying a gun. And now all of a sudden that charge is not there. That has to register with the jury. But in my brain, when I was listening to this, and I, I hate to be a conspiracy theorist, but I wonder if the DA just brought this case against Kyle Rittenhouse because they're on the side. We know the Democrats, we know the liberals are on the side of Black Lives Matter. We know that they sat there and gaslit us all through the summer of 2020, telling us it was the summer of love. We have to give them their space to get their anger out. We have to give them the right to destroy. We had, you know, if if they, they've called out the National Guard in anticipation of Kyle Rittenhouse getting off and there being riots, why we are anticipating the left to behave badly we shouldn't just accept this as the norm number one. But if the National Guard had been called out before the rioting started in 2020, we wouldn't even be having a trial right now. But the left allows chaos when it benefits their cause, right? And so we have to benefit, we have to, we, they had a narrative that they had to fulfill over the summer. And if that means that people in poor neighborhoods, you know, minority owned businesses lose their livelihood. Oh, well, because black lives matter. It made no sense. But Kyle Rittenhouse is a white kid. He didn't shoot any black person. Jump kick man. They refer to this guy as jump kick man. He's the guy that you see in this still photo in the air with his leg extended, you know, kicking Kyle Rittenhouse in the face. By the way, if you look a person of color, the only person of color involved in this entire episode is quote unquote jump kick man. We don't know his name because they can't find him. Are you kidding me? They are rounding up white people all over this country who dared to be at the Capitol on January 6th and putting them in prison without charges and putting them in solitary confinement because they are studying everything. They got facial recognition going to try to look at the eyes because they got a mess to try to get these people who walked into the Capitol. Didn't destroy anything. Didn't, it didn't cause any havoc, didn't assault anyone, but they're rounding them up, but we can't find this guy. I don't know. That was one of the things I was yelling at the TV about. I'm like, really? You can't find him. I bet you if you owed taxes, you'd find him. I bet you if he was in the Capitol on January 6th, you'd know right where he is, but we can't find him for this. I don't know. I'm not buying it. 866-408-7669. Um, uh, coming up, I, I'm gonna. As I said, I want to get your calls, and I want to work through some of the defense yesterday, um, and some of the prosecution, rather, some of the testimony in the in their um, arguments that they have their closing arguments, because this is where I think the prosecution lost their case because it changed. It was so different, and I think the defense did a great job of pointing out how different their argument is now versus when they started because they couldn't prove their case, so they just changed it, which is what a good prosecutor does, right? But some of the things that the prosecution was saying yesterday, I thought, my goodness, people who lived in Kenosha and saw those riots and saw the violence and saw their city destroyed, are they buying any of this? Let's go to Nevada and start with Mary on KDWN. Hey, Mary, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi, how are you? 
I'm doing great. So what, did, what were you thinking yesterday? Well, what I was thinking when I was watching it, at, you know, an outside view at 50,000 feet, being right. a juror at, in this day and age with these really high-profile cases, I think it's really hard to to take yourself away from the political aspects of it. And I'm really afraid in some of these cases that I saw that there's really no true justice for the defendant because they're afraid to let him off because people know that you're a juror on this case. And that the law is not being applied because of all the political ramifications. I'm scared for this kid, just for that reason. You, you know, you're, you're brilliant because that was one of my notes was, will the jury have the guts to do the right thing? Because we know that there were, there were, they were taking pictures of the jurors. Of course, the people who were taking pictures of the jurors, nothing happened to them, right? We just said, don't do that again. And off they went on their merry way. But here's the thing. Here's where I have hope, Mayor. It has to be a unanimous decision. So if one juror has the guts to say this isn't right, it's done. Well, that would be great. But unfortunately, I, I hope that we have a lot of people who have guts on that jury. Because like I said, that, that child did not go down there to cause problems. I mean, that's very evident. He went down there to, you know, he may have a hero complex, but he definitely went down there to help. And, and. Oh, Mayor, we, we lost you. Sorry about that, Mayor. We, we lost you. I, I think Mary makes a great point. But again, and, and I'm not the one who usually has hope. So this is a little weird. <laughs> this is a little weird for me. I'm that person who the glass is always half empty. But when, when I heard that it has to be a unanimous decision, and if they decide on the first count that Kyle Rittenhouse you know, was, was, was acting in self-defense, he was acting properly, once they decide that, the rest of it's all done. That's it. So if one, if they cannot get a unanimous jury verdict on that first count, it's done. And the fact that they're, you know, so, well, there's, there's going to be unrest. I think that's a really sick place for our country to be right now where, well, we just accept, we just, you know, we just assume that the left is going to, going to riot to get their way. And they're, we're all supposed to be perfectly okay with that. And we just accept it. We just expect it. We accept it. And we're like, oh, yeah, well, that's just today. There's, there's something really wrong with that thinking. All right. More of your calls coming up. 866-408-7669 on the Brian Kilmeade show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Oh, let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty that had no one in it, he swung a chain, he lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. Oh, and there's this empty wooden flatbed trailer that they pulled out in the middle of the road and they tipped it over to stop some bear cats and they lit it on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word. Um, okay, so that was the DA, um, Thomas Binger, in his closing argument yesterday. Now, this is one of those things uh, that I was was watching and listening to while I was in the kitchen doing, you know, emptying the dishwasher, doing a bunch of things. So I was watching a little bit, but mostly listening. And I stopped. I remember stopping doing this going, wait a minute. So you're telling a jury of people who live in Kenosha, who watched their city being burned down that, oh, it was really no big deal. He just lit some things on fire. 
it was no big. He just he just tipped over a porta potty. He was swinging chains to people. He um he he set a dumpster on fire. He pulled pulled someone's flatbed truck wasn't his right and set it on fire. It's okay. Like downplaying the whole thing. And I thought, are you serious? Is this a serious argument? Because he is at the same time saying that Kyle Rittenhouse was looking for trouble. Kyle Rittenhouse is at fault here. Kyle Rittenhouse was out past curfew, which so was everybody else. Kyle Rittenhouse was 17 years old. These men who came after him that he shot were older. These were grown adults. Kyle Rittenhouse, 17 years old. So if anybody should have known better, it should have been the adults. Right. But so his argument is that Kyle was provocative because he had a gun. But the guy swinging the chain, not provocative, setting things on fire, not provocative, telling Kyle Rittenhouse he's going to kill him, not provocative. None of that's provocative. So when this when this D.A. comes out with that, I stopped and made a note. I was like, what? How does that sit with a juror? I don't understand. So I'm going to throw this out here because we've been having conversation off on here and um there's a theory that we've all seen kind of being floated around. And I want to know what you think. It's just a theory. Can't believe that it's true. But is the, is the prosecution purposely losing this case? They're bringing things up in front of the jury that you're not allowed to bring up in front of the jury. We saw them get yelled at by the judge there. You know, they, they went after Kyle Rittenhouse, not saying anything. Well, you have the right to remain silent and I'm not a lawyer, but every lawyer that I know said that that's like the first day in law school. Are they doing this purposely because they know they can't get a conviction? They know they never should have brought this case. They did it for political purposes. They charged before they had all the evidence in. So now they're just winging it. And they're making arguments into the jury that I think most of us just said, what? Now, maybe I'm prejudiced. Maybe I'm looking at this through a prejudiced lens. I don't know. I try to be objective. I'm not in the jury, so I haven't seen all the evidence and see all the pictures and see everything. But I, that to me stopped me in my tracks. Here's what else stopped me in my tracks, and I'll get to your calls. Here's what else stopped me in my tracks. I hope there are a lot of women on this jury. Because the prosecution's case is, as I said, Kyle Rittenhouse had no right to be there. Well, his dad lives in Kenosha, so he's there all the time. It's only less than 20 miles away from his home where he lives with his mother. So he's in Kenosha all the time. You have every right to be wherever you want to be in this country, right? So he has the right to be in Kenosha, just like those guys had the right to be in Kenosha. Are they from Kenosha? He was out after curfew. So were they. But Kyle Rittenhouse asked for it. Kyle Rittenhouse was provocative by carrying a gun. He provoked them. And all I could think of as a woman is, is this the guy, is this the prosecutor who says to a woman who's been attacked, well, what were you doing in the park? You know, that's a dangerous place to be, especially after dark. And look at the clothing you were wearing. It was provocative. You enticed them. You triggered them. That is in my brain, the same argument that this DA, that this prosecution was making against Kyle Rittenhouse. It's his fault. This whole thing's his fault. And you can't claim defense if you cause the violence. And as a woman, and I'm not like one of these like crazy liberal, like, you know, woohoo women But I also know that blaming a victim for something is kind of really weird, sick, and twisted. And I thought we don't do that. Because you have the right in Wisconsin to be carrying that 
that firearm, even though it looks scary. He had the right. They were triggered just because they're intolerant and they were triggered by his by him having this weapon doesn't doesn't nullify Kyle Rittenhouse's right to be on the street, to be in Kenosha, to be out after dark. Well, and even the judge said there was some question as to the validity of the curfew. And um, it doesn't violate, you know, it doesn't invalidate his right to be able to, to carry that weapon. So eight eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine is the number. Um, I, I I'm only going to have like a minute here, so I want to give you more time on the air to to tell me what your thoughts were. So we're going to come back. We're, I will take your calls uh, about this because it's just some of the some of the other notes. But the biggest thing to me was when they said that that oh you know what what the guys did, what the men who attacked him did, they weren't doing anything. They were just destroying personal property. That's no big deal. Um, I will say I didn't like I didn't like the defense going after Rosen, but Joseph Rosenbaum, you know, because he's a sex offender. That doesn't mean you're always a bad person. I realize most of us will look at that and go, hmm, that guy. But that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to, you know, attack someone. Kind of didn't like that. But the prosecution was the one who brought out, you know, they kept going after Kyle. They're the ones who brought in these other things. So I kind of feel that the defense had no other option but to go after that all right your calls coming up i am mary welcher and you're listening to the brian kilmeade show the fastest three hours in radio you're with brian kilmeade i I was astonished when you began your examination by commenting on the defendant's post-arrest silence that's basic law it's been basic law in this country for 40 years 50 years i have no idea why you would do something like that and it gives um uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So I don't know what you're up to. Don't get brazen with me. Uh, uh, you knew very well. You know very well that an attorney can't go into these types of areas when the judge has already ruled without asking outside the presence of the jury to do so. So don't give me that. So that was the judge in the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, trial earlier, just reaming out the defense and excuse me, the prosecution. And, and the question has been asked and I've, I've seen it. We've had the conversation here. Uh, I've seen it online. We've all seen it that are they doing this on purpose? Are they purposely trying to lose this, this case because they don't have a case? Um, 866-408-7669. Just one more quick take here. This is cut 40. This is the assistant DA, James Krause, when he was doing the rebuttal. So the prosecution gets to, you know, do their summary, then the defense, and then the prosecution gets another swing at it. And so here he is the second time, uh, in the rebuttal, uh, his, his second closing argument, you know, why Kyle Rittenhouse should never have used a gun to defend himself. These minor injuries we've heard the defendant have, again, Mr. Richards misstated the standard. It is not could have caused great bodily harm or death. It is not likely to have caused great bodily harm or death. It is imminent threat of death or great bodily harm. Where is that when you get a couple scrapes? Everybody takes a beating sometimes, right? Sometimes you get in a a scuffle and maybe you do get hurt a little bit. That doesn't mean you get to start plugging people with your full metal jacket AR-15 rounds and no bullets are not bullets. And we heard testimony about that. Yeah, you know, everybody, every now and then, you just got to take a beating. That's just the way it is. 
unbelievable. Let's go to Cliff in Waterbury, Connecticut. Cliff, you are on the Brian Kilmeade show. What is your opinion of all of this? And did you did you take it in yesterday? Hey, Mary, I just want to give you a similar uh, scenario and just to get your take on it. So in um, in D.C., January 6th, okay, you had a uh, pretty much a un-American event that took place. So now a bystander that lives there comes with an AR-15, and he wants to protect the uniformed police officers and the lawmakers in the Capitol building. So does he have a right to do that? And if he shot somebody, would he be justified in shooting those rioters? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not legal to carry in Washington, D.C., so no, he would not have the legal right to do that. Okay, so we're talking about legality. Okay. Y- yeah, well, we well, are. Imagine that. I, <laughs> yep, and then the, another thing, too, uh, I would simply say that, you know, you have law enforcement officers there. That's their job, and that's their authority, and that's what they're supposed to do. So for this kid to, to take, you know, actions into his own you know, his own matter of fact, if nobody attacked him with a skateboard, what would he have done with the rifle? Just walked around with the white rifle and then what? I don't know. Tell people. Well, to get he in did line, before it, before he it. was attacked. He did. He didn't. He didn't shoot anyone. He didn't. So he didn't uh, attack anyone. He 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 didn't do anything. He did just walk with it, and he said he used it for his own personal safety, just in case something happened. I mean, we all look at what was going on in those cities, and we all know it was dangerous. Would I have gone down there? No, but that was his choice to go do so. There were other people. David Dorn, he was killed protecting a business for a friend, but we don't even know his name. Right. So, and I, and I, you know, and of course, I, I totally understand that, you know, so I'm just saying that, you know, you know, you have law enforcement officers that, that do that. And, you know, the people didn't know who he was. I believe, you know, he wasn't in uniform. He didn't tell the other police officers that he was coming down or representing them, you know, so how would anybody know what his intent was? So well, how would anybody know what AR-15, Gabe, Gro- wait, wait a minute. What, how would anybody know what Gabe Grosskreutz's intent was? And first of all, he was running, yelling, he was, he was going saying, Hey, I'm friendly. I'm friendly. I'm not here to cause trouble. I'm friendly, friendly. Uh, we, we saw that testimony. Gabe Grosskreutz, had had a pistol. He had a concealed weapon, and he's not allowed to even carry it legally because uh, I believe he is a convicted felon. Someone check me if I'm wrong on that. But I'm uh, Gabe Gro- Grosskreutz was not allowed to legally have a weapon, and he lied to the police about how, whether he had a weapon or not. Okay, so pretty much you're saying is that he had a right to defend himself. Yeah, I think he did. I think he had, he legally, we know he legally had the right in Wisconsin to carry that weapon for self-defense if he so chose. Yeah, well, I just see a little different, you know what I mean? Like I said, that's law enforcement, that's their job. This guy, even though he might have the right, you know what I mean? I think he, he came in there for, for a intent, and unfortunately things happened, you know, which are unfortunate. If he didn't go, that things wouldn't happen. If he didn't have the rifle, these things, this wouldn't have happened. So you know what else would you know, you know what else would have prevented this? Calling in the National Guard before the riots last year, none of this would have happened. And if those grown men weren't on the street burning things and looting and do and destroying personal property, Kyle Rittenhouse wouldn't have been there either. So. We can look at Kyle Gross as um, Kyle Rittenhouse and say, "Oh, he shouldn't have been there. You know, none of this would have happened." Well, you know what? If those grown men had exercised better judgment and hadn't been there and hadn't chosen to to commit arson, hadn't chosen to destroy personal property, 
none of this would have happened either. So I think we can look at it that way as well. Cliff, thank you for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Let's head to Michigan. Judith, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hey there. You know, I really like the idea that the defense did not push the illegal weapon and let it ride out because when the prosecution brought up that charge, people were thinking about it. But then at the very end, when it was found that it was a legal weapon, if I were on the jury, I would have said, wait a minute, another trumped up charge? And it just showed that the prosecution was trying to pull anything out of their hat to make the, to make some kind of charge stick. But when it was brought out that it was a legal weapon, it just slapped mud on his face again. So I liked it. I liked it, the idea that defense didn't say anything about it because if that would have been me, I would have thought, let it ride out. It's going to show what an idiot this guy is. And it's going to make another another part of the case fall apart. So a lot of people said the defense should have said something. No, I like the way they played this out because it just showed, again, that the prosecution was dead in the water, excuse the pun, before it even started. They were trying to do anything they could to get any kind of charges against him. And if I was, like I said, if I was on the jury, I mean, I would. That's what I would have said. What an idiot! What an idiot! Why are you? You're trying anything you can just to get something to stick to appease the leftist community. And yeah, now I don't know the political leanings of the people on this on this jury. So you have that as well. You know, they are if they are from Kenosha, they're probably probably are more liberal, and we do have a politicization of our of our legal system. But I've never been on a jury. Have you Have you ever been on a jury, Judith? Yes, I have. Okay. Yes, so I have. you can tell me and then. I've never legit- been on a jury, but I would think that you hit a certain point after being on a jury for so long that you're like, you seriously kept me here for that, and now it's not even a thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's happened before. And it's like, are you serious? I mean, we're not stupid. You're trying to play all this, and we're not stupid. Right. And the and the thing about all these the flatbed burning, the dumpster burning, things like that, that's actually felony arson. That's not just burning something. It's felony arson. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you called, Judith. Thank you so much, because I've never been on a jury. Like, I kind of want to be on a jury someday, but I'm never going to get picked for a jury because of what I do. So, um, you know, I'm never... I actually made it into the jury box once, you know, where they where they interview, you know, they say they prosecution and the defense get to ask you questions. They get to dismiss, dismiss jurors and the prosecution was dismissing everyone. So it's a good thing that I didn't get on because I'm watching the prosecution dismiss all these people. And I'm like, Oh, your client's so guilty. (laughs) So it's probably a good thing that I did not make it onto the jury. All right. More of your calls coming up. 866-408-7669 on the Brian Kilmeade show. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I was out there that night, and to call this this mob of rioters heroes is just an absolute lie. I mean, you think about it. Uh, Binger called this mob uh, heroes when they were attacking the place where he works at. 
I mean, this this just shows how ridiculous uh, this trial has gotten. And I think it just highlights the fact that this, they never had a strong case to, uh, to begin with, but they have to throw everything that they can uh, to try to save what case they have because, you know, throughout this entire trial, their own witnesses, their own supposed video evidence uh, only served to bolster Rittenhouse's claim to self-defense. And, you know, as someone who was there that night, it's just, it's just very, very aggravating to just see someone uh, lie. Uh, to, to the jury in hopes to try to save what, you know, his, his, his save his case and, you know, potentially his career. That was Julio Rosas uh, on Tucker last night uh, with, because you had the DA Binger, uh, Thomas Binger, call the men who were shot and calling the writers. They were heroes. They were chasing Kyle Rittenhouse to try to stop him because he shot somebody. They were heroes. They were running towards the gunman. They were running towards the guy who was the shooter. They were heroes. That was another one of those moments where I almost dropped stuff in my kitchen yesterday as I was running around my kitchen doing stuff with this on in the background. I was like, wait, what? They're heroes? Seriously? I'm Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade, 866-408-7669. I want to get your thoughts on this because could the prosecution be blowing this on purpose or are they really truly this bad? Are they really, truly this incompetent? Do they really, truly not know the law so much so that the judge was constantly stopping the trial, throwing the jury out so that he could yell at them? Doug in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on KLIN. Doug, you're on the Brian Show. Hi. Hey. Uh, first off, this whole trial's a farce. It should have never happened. Um, my question to you is, as a juror... And every time the judge stops the trial and he sends them out the door because they know after the first or second time, they know they're going to chew the prosecutor out. Well, how do they know that? They don't know. They can't hear what the, but they can't hear what the judge is saying. So how would they know that? Well, but my point is, is every time the prosecutor's up, it seems like the judge interrupts him, shuts it down. And he's doing this stuff on purpose because he knows he overcharged. And he should have never brought this thing to trial. Now he's trying to get an acquittal, but the judge won't do it. So the judge is going to have to do that. But is the judge leading the jury into believing the prosecutor's incompetent? (laughs) I mean, that's where I'm going with it. You know, that's you make an interesting point because um, I I was thinking, well, how like I said to you, how could the jury even know? But if if it happened every time when when it happened, it happened when the prosecutor was uh, making a case and it was stopped and then they come back and the prosecutor is making a totally different point. That's probably a hint to the jurors that, okay the prosecutor, it keeps keeps, you know, messing up here or he keeps being stopped for whatever reason. So that's that's an excellent point. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I would assume that all of this plays into the jury and, and how they view this. It has to, right. You know, it's, but is he doing it purposely? Is, is the prosecution really that inept? And if so, should he be the DA? No, but you know, you know how it is. DAs are are voted in. So there you go. That being yeah, not in every st- yeah, I don't know how they do it in Wisconsin, but not in every state are they voted in. So I don't know what the process is there. They could just be appointed. Doug, interesting. Thank you. Appreciate you joining us. And thanks for listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Let's head to Thomas in New York on WABC. Thomas, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi, how you doing? I don't okay. want to sound redundant, but 
when that prosecutor started making riotous heroes, I had to get off, get up, shut it off, and walk out of the room. I can't it's a sad you. state of affairs when you have a prosecutor who's supposed to stand for law and order making heroes out of riotous. So you're you you're from uh, New York, right? And we saw what happened in New York. I have not been in Manhattan in a long time, just because I um, don't I don't have the time to fill out the paperwork if I get stabbed. So I haven't been there. And the summer of 2020, I mean, De Blasio really drove the city down. But the summer of 2020 really destroyed Manhattan. And I, I think the people who own those businesses were both liberal and conservative. They were every color. They were every race. They were every gender. Had their businesses destroyed, had their neighborhoods destroyed. If you're sitting on a jury and you saw you lived through that, let's say it was let's say this was happening in New York. I don't understand how a juror could listen to what this prosecutor was saying and saying, yeah, it wasn't a big deal. They were just committing arson. It's no big deal. They didn't deserve to lose their lives over arson, over burning people's properties. They didn't you know, he was minimizing it. And I think that affects a jury who lived through that. Am I wrong? It should affect the jury. The minute he started making light of the uh, felonies that were being committed, he lost all his credibility to anybody who has a, a logical way of thinking. To your caller who said it was a, it's the police job to uh, defend life and property, yes, it is. However, not when your police are told to stand down. The police had a line two blocks away from where this happened, and they That's didn't right. do anything because they were told not to do anything. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I wish I had brought that up with him. That is that is a fantastic point. You're right. And they were allowed in many of these cities to destroy certain areas. And those areas in most of these cities where they were allowed to destroy were the poor areas where the people of color had their businesses and they were they were supposedly all about Black Lives Matter, but they're burning down the businesses of mostly black people, black owned businesses. It made no sense to me whatsoever. And yet here's the mainstream media saying, oh, the summer and the, and the Democrat politicians calling it the summer of love. Wasn't the summer of love. If you lost your livelihood, couldn't pay your bills anymore and lost everything. Uh, Tom is very observant. Thank you for joining me. I want to get Shane in Florida here listening on WOKV. Hi, Shane. Hey, Mary. How you doing? It's great to talk to you. Great show. And I was actually just thinking while you were talking, I wish I still lived in Vero Beach. So I could catch Brian and get my book signed. But oh, yeah. I'm in Jacksonville, so yeah. <laughs> so uh, I was thinking back, and um, if you go back to 1992, when uh, Bush Senior was president, right? Mm-hmm. We got you got the Rodney King episode that went down. Yes. And you got Reginald Denny pulled out of his truck, you know, yep. got smashed and all that stuff. So there was like 2,400 people approximately injured. Um, you know, then of course Bush lost the election that year, and uh, Bubba Clinton rolls in, and uh, the whole country begins to go super soft right there. And the uh, the thing that stands out is during that time period, you know, the group of Americans that used the Constitution and the Second Amendment to defend their to defend their mm-hmm. homes, their property, and their businesses. Yes. Korean. Yeah. Right. So that's what you know. People have forgotten, just like there's all these people that have forgotten 9-11. Right. I I don't mean to cut you off, Shane. Uh, We're running out of time here, but thank you so much for listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. You can catch Brian tonight, 6 o'clock, at the Vero Beach Book Center in Vero Beach, Florida. Get him to sign your copy of his latest book. 
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.